Good day, Brigade. This is Bobby, and today we've got an interesting episode for you. Calling it Afghanistan. It's a bit more complicated than you might think. This obviously is going to be covering recent events with Afghanistan and the United States, but also kind of trace a little bit of the history, too. But before we get into that, we're going to provide you with an interesting little fact to hopefully give a lighter mood to the whole topic we're about to delve into because, oh boy, got a lot to unpack here. Unpack here. Anyways, did you know that dogs are a lot like humans in that they have two sets of teeth throughout their lifetime? They actually start out with a baby pair of 28 teeth with no molars, and then when they get to about four months of age, age, they've shed most of their baby teeth for their adult teeth. Yeah. Dogs are like people in that regard, too. Anyways, let's get on with it. So, on to the topic at hand. Afghanistan. The unconquerable land tucked away in the mountains, major stop on the Silk Road, bane of all empires, literally has the nickname of Graveyard of Empires. Now, this name is a little bit of a misnomer. Technically, yes, Afghanistan has been conquered, and yes, it has happened a few times. But the mightiest of empires have failed quite spectacularly within Afghanistan, and that's kind of how it's earned its name. In fact, Afghanistan was a buffer state in what was known as the Great Game between Britain and Russia. Basically, it was a fight to control dominance of trade within the Central Asian, Indian, and Middle Eastern area regions. And pretty much every state was under some subjugation, and for the longest time, Afghanistan was an independent buffer state. Until eventually, the British did ultimately take over, well, not exactly take over, but rather proposed a deal and managed to get it through to Afghanistan, if I remember correctly, by force, because, <laughs> you know, that's how Britain rolls. And there was a trade agreement between both Afghanistan and Britain. This lasted until about 1919, when Afghanistan said, Alright, screw it, we're throwing this off. And the Anglo-Afghan Wars began. And ultimately, Britain was humiliated and driven out of Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was declared a sovereign state under a monarchist system, if I remember correctly. Hold on, let me double check that there, make sure we are right. Yep. For the longest time, as they were through their independence, going through World War I, they remained pretty much completely neutral. This is when they were fighting off the shackles of the remnants of British oppression and all that stuff. Then in World War II, they were officially neutral, however, they did have Axis sympathies. 
Though not officially an Axis member, they did take advantage of their friendliness with the Axis powers to harass and attack the British even more. Because, again, fuck the British for what they did to people. <sighs> can never forget that. And afterwards, they actually had an interesting time during the Cold War. In the early days of the Cold War, they actually played both sides to improve and increase their development. Over time, the Soviet Union actually created more development within Afghanistan and built it up. Eventually, the monarchy went and got taken down in a bloodless coup. This established a democratic system within Afghanistan for the first time. And it did not last very long. Because... <laughs> it lasted about five years before a rather ugh, event known as the Sour Revolution occurred. Also known as the April Revolution or April Coup. What was it? It's when the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, their Communist Party, overthrew the Afghan president, Mohammad Daoud Khan, hope I'm pronouncing that correct, on the 27th and 28th of April 1978. He had himself taken the power though in the previous coup of 1973. Let's not forget that. However, this was a bloodless coup, which deposed the king and established the First Republic. Most of, the con most of Daoud Khan's family was killed at the presidential palace in by military officers in support of the BDPA, and it basically resulted in the formation of the Soviet-aligned government with Nur Mohammed Taraki as president, or General Secretary of the Revolutionary Council, more correctly. It was ordered by the PDPA member Hazifot Hafizullah Amin, I'm pretty sure I mispronounced that, who had become a significant figure in the revolutionary government. At a press conference on June 1978 in New York, he claimed that the event was not a coup, but a revolution by the will of the people. This is not uncommon for communist revolutions. However, what made the Sour Revolution so freaking big is... It was basically the beginning of everything we know thus far. Yep. Pretty much the state of Afghanistan could be traced to this particular time. Not necessarily everything, everything, but a lot of the events that bring us into the modern day have their origin in some one way or another in the Sour Revolution. Why did the Sour Revolution happen? Well, because Communist forces, Cold War, Soviet Union, you get the picture. How long were they in control? Not long. <laughs> we're talking like less than a year before Civil War broke out. Why did it break out? Massive socialist reforms dealing with land, wealth distribution, and things like that, agitating local tribal and religious leaders who in turn began to agitate force revolt. 
About this time, and a little bit later, the Mujahideen starts to come in. I'm sure you all have at least some familiarity with that name. Why is the Mujahideen important? They'll come back, at least some of their members anyway. Anyways, they were largely the leaders of a coalition that was fighting the Soviets. Or rather, the Soviet puppet in Afghanistan. This went on for quite a while. They were supported by all sorts of forces. They were supported by the Saudi Arabians. They were supported by Pakistan. They were supported by us. They were basically supported by anyone who was anti-communist in the area, which was basically everybody. Why? Because this was the Islamic world and they did not take that shit lightly. No. Islam actually has some tie-ins to politics as well. I'm sure you're all familiar with Islamic Republic of Iran and things like that, but basically... Through this, the Soviet-Afghan War occurs. Over time, the Soviets are eventually beaten back and a coalition is formed with the Mujahideen and their allies. This coalition would not last, however, because way too many diverging interests. It was a broken coalition from the get-go and built on convenience, not necessarily on similar ideals. So what happens? Well, guess what? Civil War. This is about the time we can start to see the dawn of the Taliban. Where did the Taliban came from? Well, at this point we're in 1994 of September. They were originally formed from the Talibs and the Madrasas. Talibs are basically students and Madrasas are Islamic schools. They don't teach just religious things. They're a lot like, you know, a Catholic or Christian private school would be. But I don't think they're necessarily private or for profit or anything like that. It's a whole thing. But you can see where the Taliban get their name from there. The Talibs. The students. They're a youth student movement and militia. So. How is the Civil War going? Well, if you're pretty much anyone, it's divided. If you're the Taliban, you're kicking ass. After they formed, not too long afterwards, they seized Kandahar. Why is Kandahar important? It's a very ancient capital for many empires that formed out of Afghanistan. Like what empires? Well, there's the Durrani Emirate, there's the Tamirids, which became the Mughal Empire. You know, those empires. So they seized Kandahar. A couple of years later, they start seizing more territory across Afghanistan and eventually seize Kabul. And Rambani and his people are shoved, at, shoved out. Afterwards, they immediately get recognition as the legitimate government by Pakistan, the House Saad in Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. By the way, where was the United States on all this? Interestingly enough, they were funding it. Yeah. We were backing the Taliban back then. That is not a lie either, you can look that up. 
This isn't the first time we funded terrorist organizations that come and bite us back in the ass. In fact, still experiencing the fallout of that. But originally, yes, it was us. Along with Pakistan and a couple other states, we were one of the backers. Eventually, they took over and started to rule with Sharia law to a very, 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 very oppressive degree. We're talking borderline slavery, probably actual slavery, uh, women not having any rights, pretty much. By the way, this was a total windback from where they were at in the 70s. In the 70s, they were actually pretty open. In fact, it was legal for women to not wear burqas. Yeah. Once upon a time, Afghanistan was a little bit more laid back. A lot like Iran in the 70s. Interesting how these events seem to happen around the 70s to 80s. Anyway. As you can guess, Hypersharia was super oppressive. And most of the world was like, Hey, let's not do that. Anyways, the Taliban set up an oppressive authoritarian government based on Sharia law within Afghanistan, and we're heading into the beginning of the 21st century, the new millennium. Now about this time, people around my age were actually starting to be born and starting to grow up. We were starting to get things and starting to know things. There was an event that younger people may not necessarily know, but people around my age would definitely at least remember. The September 11th attacks. Now this was Al-Qaeda with backed by Osama bin Laden. Why is this relevant? Well, this is part of what brought the United States into the Middle East again. Wait, again? Yes, again. There were the Gulf Wars, which, oh, that was a thing. I believe we were at least observers in the Iran-Iraq war. I don't know if we had any involvement whatsoever, financial or otherwise. But I'm pretty sure we were at least observers. We had observers in the Iranian revolution. In fact, my mother was a part of the... I can't remember which one exactly, but she was a part of that one of the teams observing Iran at the time. In the military. United States military during the Iranian Revolution. But basically, the whole Islamic Revolutions really, really started in the late 70s, early 80s with kind of a pushback against the westernization of many of these places. In fact, up until the Cold War, there were kings of Afghanistan that outright refused railways and stuff. Why? They believed that the westernization would destroy their Islamic order. Which, maybe it would have, maybe it would have fused and melded with it. It's hard to say. We know what path was chosen, though. Anyways, back to 2001. Eventually, the Taliban and the began to hold Osama bin Laden, not like in a prisoner sense, but more rather as a friend sense, and basically offer him asylum. This pisses off the US, and eventually we start bombing Afghanistan like fucking crazy. 
In response to this, the Taliban actually came to us with, after tight negotiations, many of which fell through completely, the Taliban came to us with a last offer. What was this last offer? We will give you Osama bin Laden if you stop bombing our country. What was our response? Well, as you probably know, through SEAL Team 6 killing Osama bin Laden, we refused. And thus began our real involvement in Afghanistan. Why did we refuse? At the time, President George W. Bush said, and I quote, We will not negotiate with terrorists. They were literally handing you the guy you wanted. And all you had to do was stop bombing their country. Yes, they're a totalitarian regime. Yes, we should probably do something to end that totalitarian regime. But at the time... And this was 2001, by the way. So we could have done it. We could have stopped a lot of crap. Well, not exactly. A lot of crap was still bound to happen, though. It's just, things could be very, very different. But, under the Bush administration, Bush II, we will not negotiate with terrorists. And thus began one of the long, the longest war in U.S. history. One that has been going on ever since I was six. Remember the events leading up to it, too. Anyways, fast forward a little bit and we start with the administration of Barack Obama. Now, a lot of people make a lot of mistakes. And this kind of the point here is to say, when it comes to the whole Afghanistan thing, there's a lot of blame to go around and a lot of people were involved and no one administration can be blamed for any, well, can't be blamed for all of it. You could argue that, yeah, the Bush administration could have avoided a lot of this and probably avoided much conflict, but inevitably something was going to happen in the Middle East. This was just, this was a given. Tensions were already very high there. And our presence, at least supporting groups financially, was not very well taken by many opposition groups. We were already there, we were already involved. If it didn't begin then, it would probably begin later. But the point is, this was likely to... This was almost inevitable. So, under Barack, we continue our blunders, our, our wars, our victories, our wins, our losses, and all that. Many more terrorist groups start to grow, build, and spread. The Arab Spring occurs, which is basically like a mass... Pretty much like a mass regional revolution. It was incredible, and I mean that in the most neutral sense of the term. 
I do not mean to say anything positive about this, nor really negative because it's easy to state in the time that you live in whether or not event, an event can be seen as horrible or great. But to look back on it historically is very difficult to say. And in the interest of taking an objective viewpoint, we're not going to really try to make a claim one way or the other on whether or not it was valid or not. That's not what we're here to say. We're just here to give an idea of the events occurring at the time within the region and things that were occurring there. Sorry. Anyways, through all this began the rise of drone strikes in Afghanistan. As you may know, drones, tr drones became very popular under the Obama administration, actually being constructed and fully built and ready to go by the end of the Bush administration, and were employed heavily for targeted strikes. They were effective and mortifying. In fact, for a while, they actually began a national debate on their usage. Why? Well, there were many reports of civilians being caught in the crossfire, the explosions, people not getting their targets correct, things like that. Now, this did happen. But one per event I can remember recounting, and if I remember correctly, it was actually part of a clip on John Stewart, on The Daily Show with John Stewart, where there was actually a scene where he was trying to be serious where he was talking to a little girl, or rather, there was an interview with a little girl or a little boy, or I can't remember, a child though, who was saying they live in fear of sunny days because that's when drones can strike. And they'd see drones almost every single sunny day. Really, when you come to think about it, living through this, I'm not gonna lie, there is a bit of a bias on my part on, what, on some of these things. And drone strikes are one of those more controversial things. I even remember having to debate it within college. I don't remember. I, I am still on the fence personally. Anyways, moving on. We get through the Obama administration, increased drone strikes, things like that. And we get to the man in orange. The Don. And what does the Don do? Well, he negotiates with terrorists. What does he negotiate exactly? A plan for troop removal to end the quote-unquote forever wars that he's talking about. Now how do we feel about this? Honestly, do like the end of wars, or these pointless wars, do not like the man who was issuing it, and he did a very, eh, job at it. In fact, the orders he'd given were, eh. And it should be important to note that because it's part of what leads us to the events of the past few days. And the Biden administration having to take that, eh, and also add their own, eh, to it. Sorry, there's a lot of, eh here because I cannot stress enough how messy this whole situation has been just for the past 20 years 
It has been a messy, messy situation. But it's what's led to this whole sort of rushed panic thing. Oddly enough, it's actually kind of reminiscent of the fall of Saigon. Rushed, panicked, hurried, not a well laid out plan, poorly executed by the next person. It was just a sloppy end to a sloppy war that never needed to happen. And quite frankly, it was just... The whole situation was just awful. Would the advance of the Arab Spring and all that stuff still happen even if we hadn't done all what we had done in Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan? Yes. There is a very good chance events like that would have definitely occurred. There was already very high tension within the Middle East and all things like that. There was a lot of tension just in the whole world in general. We were going into the height of the Cold War. Two major superpowers were fighting with one another. Other powers were literally trying to scramble to a non-aligned movement to try to save everything. There was literally a war of building nukes. There was negotiations, thankfully, to reduce those nukes. There was a crazy guy with a wine stain on his forehead who wanted to reform the Russian economy. There was a crazy guy who was a B-list actor who wanted to basically recreate Star Wars. Seriously, look it up. The Strategic Defense Initiative. It's... Oh my god, it starts out as Star Wars, then lasers then missiles, then missiles surrounding the world. It's crazy. <laughs> well, anyways, as someone who actually lived through this, some of my personal thoughts are, we should have really never done this in the first place. There's a conflict that didn't need to happen on our part, and it got way rougher than it should have. And while I do believe that totalitarian regimes should be addressed and taken care of and not left to stay, it's also kind of hard to say whether or not it's a right or place to really just intervene where we feel we must. And for many, there's a lot of questioning of the motives of the United States for doing everything that it's done in the Middle East. And there's a lot of good reason to question that. Especially when you consider who our allies are, what their interests are, what we've done that might, that definitely forwards their interests. The rise of Wahhabism within the whole Middle East region, thanks to the House Saud. You'll notice we're referring to Saudi Arabia as the House Saud. Why? Because that's the ruling dynasty. That's why it's called Saudi Arabia. It is Arabia ruled by Saudi, or the House Saud. So technically, it's proper to say the house side. Well, anyways, when you really look at it, you gotta wonder whether or not we should have done what we did, and why we did what we did, and how we did what we did. And as far as actually having personally lived through it and such, I can say that It really makes you wonder. It makes you wonder whether or not your loyalty within your country is necessarily re readily deserved. 
whether or not you should ask whether or not it should do something to earn that respect and loyalty. Should you, res- should you at very least acknowledge and respect your country so as much not to break its laws immediately? Yeah. But your country's got to give back to you. It can't expect to just get from you and give nothing. And this is one of the most common mistakes made within the world. It's not just an America mistake. It's not just a Britain mistake. It's not just a Russia mistake, a China mistake, an Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan mistake. It's a human mistake. We give to a greater power, but don't expect anything in exchange for that giving to the greater power. And while it's fair to say that who are we to demand something of something greater than ourselves, one should ask, why are we not making our social constructs work for us? Why are we not making the tools we have built work as tools? Now, I'm not saying all this could be avoided through just focusing on that kind of crap. It takes a lot of stuff, and this is a very complex situation, and... We didn't even cover it close to its entirety. We glossed over a lot of crap. In fact, how much of it did we really gloss over? Well, in our notes, we actually put it down as little footnotes. We only have something on 1973 coup. Well, that coup is actually kind of important because it brings about democracy within Afghanistan and I encourage you to look it up. That's kind of what we kind of encourage here is to do some more further research. We'd like to provide you with points and topics of doing so and getting further with your own research and with this particular topic we heavily encourage it. It reflects modern events, it's something that's happening right now and as a nation we need to respond to our sudden change. We're no longer at war with Afghanistan. Not in any formal sense, anyway. We're going to have a lot of soldiers coming home, and a lot of them are probably going to be looking for jobs. Right now, there are a lot of job opportunities, too. Now, the question is, are employers going to step up and offer veterans and, well, workers as a whole, what they truly deserve? And, again... There's a lot of questions that have to be answered, and it's not just a matter of, like, labor force in the United States. We've got to ask ourselves, how will Afghanistan rebuild now that the Taliban is back in power? We only put them on a hiatus. But this is why the unconquerable mountains are the unconquerable land. It's a very valuable area, especially being on its ancient path of the Silk Road, and especially with China's plans to rebuild it for a large part of its history, it was actually relatively peaceful. It was the rapid expansion of imperialism and the furtherance of the Cold War with neo-imperialism that really pushed it into the chaos terrorist haven that it is today. So the real question is, what can we do to help change this? What can we help do to bring about a new age to these nations that we've really all undoubtedly caused harm to. Well, maybe not all, but European powers in particular. European and the United States. 
And yeah, we gotta ask ourselves, is this war on terror just another war on drugs and just another spirit war? And we're just trying to fight something that we really can't win against? People are enraged in this world for a reason. And it's not just because they're pissed or they're upset or they don't understand enough. They understand that their situation's not great and that things aren't going well. And they have to find a way to survive. As a nation that's actually doing pretty well, we've got a, not just a duty, but a responsibility to try to help these nations improve and get better. Now, we tried the military method within Afghanistan. It doesn't work. The Taliban in Afghanistan doesn't work either. But what can we do about it? Well, that's a question we kind of all have to ask ourselves, especially going forward. And well, it's kind of a question we really got to ask ourselves in any con- before we go into any conflict. If you're still listening, we thank you, and it's been a really interesting week, especially with this particular topic, and we've done a lot more research on this one, and wow, there is a lot we still didn't cover, and just in general, the history of the land of Afghanistan is really fascinating, and we encourage you to look it up. As always, if you want to donate, you can find us on anchor.fm backslash bobbybahbi Dash Barnett, B-A-R-N-E-T-T. It's also a passion project, so there's no requirement or necessity. We're going to be doing this whether you donate or not. Because, you know, we believe it's important to get those views out and those ideas. And really give a little bit of background on some other ideas. Because we don't only have our own personal beliefs. But we also, first and foremost, want to push forward the education of politics around the world. Anyways, thank you for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful evening and a wonderful day. So... In spite of what we just said with the sign-off there, we actually have a little bit of an extra tidbit for you from a friend of mine who is actually a history major named Matthew Wilfer. Basically, I'm just going to read the message itself because it came to us just very last minute and I'm not sure how to really phrase it in much better format. It's kind of a rant, though. He says, quote, I'm exhausted by people in the media trying to blame specific politicians for the failure in Afghanistan. Quote, it's Biden's fault, no Trumps, no Obamas, no Bushes. No one is ask what think a mo- no one is asking what I think is a more important and impactful question. Why are we still trying this? Why are we still holding the Wilsonian policy, i.e. foreign intervention, during during the peace talks after World War I, he set our current top diplomatic policy that we still follow. The U.S. principal international interest is to establish liberal democracies across the globe. Very quickly after he proposed it, it was used as an excuse to invade Russia to support the White Army against the Red Army during their civil war. Later on, it was used as an excuse to overthrow governments that were threatening to private business interests, principally in Latin America. They were called the Banana Wars, establishing banana republics. Overall, there 
there are only about seven to eight governments that have become that became that have became successful. Otherwise, the majority of them were failures within 20 years. To me, Afghanistan looks just a lot like Vietnam. There was a small government that was backed by the U.S. that only had the support of major populated areas. Of those cities, just the ruling people supported it, not the actual populace. The governments were rife with corruption and, co and incompetence that just made them look even worse. There's also an insurgency slash rebel group that the people either supported or indifferent to, but overall saw equal to if not better than their current government. After spending tons of money and lots of people dying in both conflicts, the American-backed government fell apart very quickly after U.S. forces left. Why do we keep doing this? Why indeed? Anyways, now for real. We hope you have a wonderful night and the rest of your week. And we'll see you on Friday for the Friday proposal. Thank you.